Let's begin with a word of prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, that we have the filling of the Holy Spirit and are prepared for the study of God's Word. Remember, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess, that is, admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means that simply by following the procedure of admitting or acknowledging our sins, we're cleansed and ready to move forward in spiritual life. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you have provided for us. You have revealed through the prophets and apostles down through the centuries in order to give us everything we need to know about eternal salvation and living a spiritual life. We thank you for all that you have provided for us in Christ, for your word that instructs us on every aspect, every category of reality, that we can learn to look at life, to look at your creation through divine viewpoint rather than human viewpoint. Now, Father, as we look at your word tonight, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things and then to implement them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Having lived in my new house now for about four or five months, I'm beginning to look at the yard in this deep winter we're having and trying to figure out what I'm going to do in terms of preparing my vegetable garden, where I'm going to put it and everything I'm going to do to prepare the ground so that next summer sometime I can have lots of good, tasty vegetables. Now, for those of you who are gardeners, you know that you have to do basically two things when you get ready to prepare a garden. One is negative and one is positive. Negatively, you have to go out there and remove the grass and the weeds and any rocks that are there and, and wire or anything else you might find that is somewhat detrimental to, to uh, or in, that will inhibit the growth of the plants and the fruit. Positively, you have to introduce certain things into the soil that will promote uh, good, healthy growth, that will provide good nu- nutrition. In other words, you have to put some fertilizer and a few other things into the soil in order to prepare an environment in which that seed can, can uh, germinate, take root, and flourish. Well, if you understand that concept, then you understand the passage that we're looking at tonight. So open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 21. I want to read the passage to you to begin with, and then we'll begin our exegesis. Verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does." Now, that is the context of verse 21. This verse introduces the next section in James, 
which is the first major division in the epistle. The first 20 verses covered the introduction, concluding with the threefold uh, theme, or the threefold division of the epistle, given in verse 19. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear is the subject from 121 down through 227. And begins with the first word of verse 21 in the Greek. But before we get into that, rather than looking at the first word, we need to look at the last phrase. As I have said before, one of the principles of correct interpretation so often is being able to identify a key interpretive word or a key interpretive phrase. And if you misinterpret that, or misconstrue that word or that phrase, it can skew your whole understanding of a verse or a passage, the result of which is either false doctrine or false application, or both, and may even end up in heresy. And that's the exact situation we find in this critical verse. So we will begin with the end in mind, so to speak, which is the final purpose clause here. Uh, It starts off with the aorist, Uh, active infinitive of the verb sozo. Looks like this in the Greek, S-O-Z-O, and is the basic Greek word used for salvation. What's the problem? The problem is that any time we Americans, 20th century Americans, see this word saved, we automatically want to impart into that context saved from eternal punishment, except that is not the meaning of the word. It has many more meanings than saved from eternal punishment. Now, the problem is that if you look at this passage and you identify this, this phrase, saving your souls, as relating to saved from eternal punishment or saved from hell, saved from eternal condemnation, then you are going to interpret this entire section as being related to soteriological doctrine or salvation doctrines as opposed to Christian life doctrines. So the issue that we have to resolve here is are we talking about salvation or spiritual life? Remember the word sozo has as its basic root meaning the idea of deliverance, the idea of even health, has the idea of Rescuing from danger, preserving the life, delivering, saving from physical death, freeing from disease. It can even be used for healing, to preserve something in good condition, and to including the idea of saving or preserving from eternal death. In the scriptures, the word sozo is used for three different aspects in the Christian life, and this takes us back to the plan of God. Phase one of the plan of God is salvation, justification, where we are saved from the eternal penalty of sin. Phase two is the spiritual life, where we are saved from the power of the sin nature. And phase three is when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and in our resurrection body we have no sin nature, and we are saved from the eternal presence of sin. So when we run across a passage like this and we see the word sozo, we always have to ask the question, saved 
or delivered from what? Is this justification salvation? No, it's not. Look back to verse 18. There James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That is, his read- he includes himself with his readers. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his cre- creatures. There he refers to the salvation of his readers. Furthermore, in verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren. Earlier in this epistle, he refers several times to his readers as uh, his brethren. This indicates that these are believers. So he is not trying to save them anymore. They are already saved in the sense of salvation from eternal punishment, phase one salvation or justification. So the theme of this epistle does not relate to justification salvation, but sanctification salvation. How is the believer saved from the power of sin? So when he comes to the, to the, we read at the end of verse 21, we look at this verb in order to identify the interpretive framework for verse 21. We, when we read the verse with that in mind, it says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to provide you with a mature spiritual life. That's the thrust. Saving your souls from what? Well, the context throughout James is salvation from trials. How to endure trials. How to handle testing. How to handle adversity. So what James is telling us in verse 21 is a very important thing. And that is that he is answering a question that I am asked several times, and that is why is doctrine important? Why is it important for us to study the Word of God? Why is it that we at Preston City Bible Church, emphasize Bible class. Well, we come to church and we don't come for just to hear a 20-minute sermonette and spend 25, 30, 45 minutes singing with a lot of handshaking and fellowship and all of these other things that so many churches do. Not that those things are necessarily in and of themselves wrong. It's an issue of priority. Why do we put such a priority on the teaching of God's Word? And it is simple, and we see it in this passage. We are mandated, that is the thrust of the infinite, or the imperative to receive the Word. We are mandated to learn the Word of God. This is carried out again and again in Scripture. We are mandated to learn the Word of God, and in this passage, we are told that one of the reasons that we are to learn the Word of God, we are to learn Bible doctrine, because this is what saves our lives. This is what gives us the information we need to face and handle adversity. That's the context in this passage. So the first reason that we should study Bible doctrine is so that we can face and handle adversity, the trials of life. Because this passage is clear from verse 2 of chapter 1 that we are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or adversities Because you know that the testing, and there we have the word uh, dachimion, which should be translated evaluation. Because you know that the evaluation of your faith produces endurance. And we're going to go through evaluation testing again and again in the Christian life. But what do we mean by this term Bible doctrine? Bible doctrine refers to the principles and precepts that are extrapolated 
from the Word of God, from a study of the Bible in its original languages, Hebrew and Aramaic in a few places in the Old Testament, Koine Greek in the New Testament. That is, we study the Bible in, its orig- in the original languages. We extrapolate various principles and precepts for living the spiritual life, living the life that God has designed for us from eternity past. And in this age, the church age, we have a unique spiritual life. This is what we have been studying, especially in Galatians on our early Sunday morning class. The unique spiritual life that God has provided for us, unlike any spiritual life in any other time in human history. And it is predicated upon not only the indwelling, but the filling of God the Holy Spirit who empowers us. So through a study of God's Word, through we, ex- we extrapolate principles, which we call Bible doctrine, the teachings of Scripture. Now, this is not just abstract theology. One of the problems you run into today is a lot of people think, as soon as you hear the word doctrine, that you're referring to abstract theology that is beyond the realm of the every, er, everyday average believer and has nothing to do with their life, but just with a lot of abstract principles. But Bible doctrine has to do with very practical principles. As a professor of mine in seminary used to say, any theology that is not applicable is bad theology. Now, it may take a while to go through all of the whys and the wherefores and to fully understand a specific theological principle before we start seeing its relevance. But isn't that true about so many areas of study in life? How many times did you complain about learning basic principles of arithmetic in the first, second, third grade, going through uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and it wasn't for years that you realized that this had a lot of relevance in your life once you started dealing with a checkbook or filling out your income tax return or any number of other things, going to the grocery store, making sure you weren't shortchanged. All kinds of things were applied, but for a while it was just academic knowledge or abstract knowledge. So we begin with Bible doctrine, and in this passage we see that the first reason to study doctrine is that it enables us to face adversity. Secondly, we as believers are mandated to be able to correctly understand and handle the Bible. This is in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed correctly handling the Word of God. Secondly, or thirdly, we cannot apply what we don't know. This is a critical principle. So many people think they can just go to church and that somehow in the dynamic of having a wonderful worship experience, praying together with other people, going through certain rituals, whatever their denominational practices might be, that somehow that is going to cause them to grow spiritually. Yet that is just the opposite of what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that spiritual growth takes place in the realm of two dynamics. Number one, the filling of the Holy Spirit, who energizes the spiritual life of the church-age believer. And two, the Word of God, Bible doctrine. We cannot apply what we do not know. First, we have to go through the process of learning it. We can't know what we haven't learned. And we can't learn something without having the attitude of teachability, humility, and authority orientation. We have to be willing to have the discipline, the self-discipline, to make attendance at Bible class regular, consistent, because that's how you learn anything in life. You make it a priority. You're there whether you want to be there or not. 
week in, week out. You're always there. You focus, you concentrate, you learn. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. That's how we learn, whether we're talking about something related to your job or the spiritual life. It's funny how people get the idea sometimes that because it has to do with your relationship to God, that it's going to be restricted to one-syllable or two-syllable words, and it's going to be reducible to five or six principles, and then you can just move on. But that's far from true. And if you think about it, you'll realize that, that the, the result of that kind of thinking is that it's made most of our churches and most of our teaching very superficial and very divorced from the reality of life. Fourth, we are mandated in the Scriptures to be ready at all times to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And there are all kinds of questions that people will ask you about what you believe and why you believe that. And if you are a growing, maturing believer and at all concerned about giving, interacting at all with unbelievers, then you need to be able to give an answer. And that means you have to learn what the answer is. And that only comes from a detailed study of God's Word, 2 Peter 3.15. Fifth, the Word of God is the second major power option in the spiritual life. The first is the Holy Spirit, and together they comprise a power tandem. They work together. This is a tandem. You can't have one without the other. Sometimes you'll go to a church that makes a, a big issue out of the Holy Spirit. They don't spend a whole lot of time teaching, but they're having a great time with the Holy Spirit. And that always ends up in mysticism. Many other churches you go, and they may have a certain facade of emphasis on the Bible and teaching the Bible, but there's no underlying recognition of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and that usually ends up in some form of legalism. These two work in tandem. The spiritual life is a spiritual life. It is energized by God, the Holy Spirit, and it is based upon the precept in Galatians chapter 5 that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And sixth, in Romans 12:2, we are mandated to renovate our thinking. We are told, do not be conformed to this world, but let your thinking be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The Christian life is a life of thinking. It's not a life of emoting. When life gets tough and you face the trials and adversities of life, that, that so many people face, whether it's losing a job, whether it's family crises, financial crises, career crises, whatever it may be. But when the rug is pulled, pulled out from under you, all of those wonderful times when you sat around the piano and sung all the great hymns that, that stir your emotions so deeply, and there's nothing wrong with that. I appreciate all of the great hymns, and I've had many wonderful times in my Christian life when I've done just that. But when the tough time comes, that doesn't get you through the tough times. What gets you through the tough times is you know what God is doing in your life, you know the principles of Scripture, you understand the stress busters, the problem-solving devices, the provisions that God has given us for handling the difficulties and the adversities of life. And that is why James says what he says in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness. Now that is a reference to rebound. That is a reference to confession of sin. But it's putting the emphasis not so much on the act of confession, which is admission or acknowledging our sin privately to God the Father, but it is on what takes place next. You see, what happens is, at the moment of salvation, 
we are placed, first of all, through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit in an eternal relationship with God. That can never be broken. But secondly, our diagram here, we'll draw the bottom circle here, represents our relationship with God in time, our day-to-day experience. When we are in this circle, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the moment we sin, we commit some sin, whether it's an overt sin, mental attitude sin, or sin of the tongue, we're out of fellowship, and we are now controlled by the sin nature. The way to recover is simple. It's based on the cross. Christ paid everything, paid for everything on the cross. And 1 John 1, 9, we simply admit or acknowledge our sin. Because everything's been done already, we don't add anything to it. So we don't have to feel sorry for it, don't have to go through penance or anything else. We simply admit or acknowledge our sins and we're restored to fellowship. But we have to stay in this bottom circle. We have to stay here. If we commit a sin, two seconds later we're back out here and there's no spiritual growth while we're under the control of the sin nature. So we have to stay in the bottom circle. That's the point. That's what James is emphasizing here when he says, remove uncleanness. This is, that, this is a reference to, to sin. Laying aside all uh, filthiness or un, literally uncleanness and all that remains of wickedness. Now that's just a difficult, difficult uh, phrase in the Greek to translate. The old King James said, superfluity of naughtiness. Now, don't you just love that great diction of the, of the um, King James? Well, I had a Greek professor who had a tremendous vocabulary by the name of Zane Hodges. And I always loved Zane's vocabulary, and I'd come home almost every day from class and have to look up two or three words in my dictionary. And Zane has a little commentary out on James, and he translates this passage, the excrescence which evil is. Now, doesn't that communicate to you just about as much as superfluity of naughtiness? So I had to pull up my dictionary and look up excrescence. And it's a great word for explaining the concept. It means an abnormal outgrowth or enlargement, usually an uh, an unwanted or unnecessary accretion or addition. So even the dictionary defines the word with more difficult words. So see, that's what's great about learning the spiritual life is at least your vocabulary is going to be be improved. And what the, the meaning is, is that evil... That's the word here that's translated wickedness. It's really kaikia. Probably could refer to malice, but it refers to evil or sin, used synonymously with sin in this passage. That we are to lay aside, just like taking off a coat, laying aside uh, immorality and all of the excess of sin. Sin is viewed as being an excess. It's a genitive construction. It is an epexegetical genitive, all the excess which consists of sin. And then the command, which is, to receive or to take in the word implanted. And that comes back to this analogy I used at the beginning of a seed. A seed has to be placed in the soil, and that soil has to be prepared. The preparation is the word humility. Humility is teachability. It's the absence of arrogance. And what James is saying here is, first of all, we have to be back in fellowship and staying in fellowship if we're going to learn the Word of God because it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us and matures us in the spiritual life. 
Secondly, we have to have the attitude of humility that goes along with being under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is part of grace orientation. It's the absence of arrogance. And it means that we are oriented to the authority of God and His Word and we're willing to submit to it. And that's the foundation for going forward. And humility, that is, with the right attitude of teachability, authority orientation to God, we are to take in, decomai, take in the Word implanted, which is able to deliver our life, save our life, deliver us in the midst of trials. If you want to know how to advance through trials, you need to learn the stress busters, which are extrapolated from doctrine. That is why learning doctrine is important. It's not just some academic exercise so we can learn a lot about the Bible and pat ourselves on the back because we know a lot of technical theological vocabulary and we've had some intellectual stimulation because we've learned a lot about the Bible and a lot about theology. It's because it drives us to dependence upon God in every aspect of our lives so that we can apply the principles in His Word so that we can advance to spiritual maturity so God can be glorified with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Just pray that we might be challenged with the importance of learning doctrine, of advancing in our spiritual life, so that we can handle all the adversities, prosperity, whatever tests may come, that you might be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. That's the quick view of that passage. Ken, you came in late. (laughs) We're not done yet. (laughs) That was the short version. (laughs) We, We did that so that Bryce could have something to put on the website to answer the question of why doctrine was important. Now we're going to get back and do a little more detailed exegesis on this passage because there are, is some, there are some tremendous things for us to understand here that we just sort of skipped over in that process. Now you see the overview of the passage and where we're going and its significance. The passage begins in the Greek with an inferential particle, dio. D-I-O. And I sat there for a while and scratched my head and asked the question, Why does James use this particular word? Normally, when you are drawing a conclusion, when you have laid out some principles in a passage, and then you're going to reach a conclusion, you use what's called a, this is where we get a little fancy technical grammatical language, you use a post-positive particle, un. Post-positive means that it always is the second word in the sentence. It's just... I've got to use big words like that every now and then so you know I have an education. Un. O-U-N. That is a, therefore, where you're drawing an inference. You've laid out your premises, and now you're drawing a conclusion. Well, I, I kept trying to figure out how verse 21 related to the passage. Does it relate to the previous two verses, or is it the beginning of a new passage and a new subject? And I realized in my study of the, of the passage that Dio usually introduces a shift in the action. This word introduces a new subject. It is going to take what has been said previously 
And now it is going to draw application. So right away we know, because this word is used, that we're going to get into some pretty meaty application of the previous principles. Now the previous principle is a general command of verse 19, the threefold command, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, it would be real easy for somebody to say, okay, well, I'm already doing that. I, I'm pretty ready to hear. I, I'm in I'm Bible class most of the time, and I don't, um, I don't whine and moan and groan about all my troubles, and I don't gossip a whole lot about other people, and I keep my temper in check most of the time. Um, so let's just move on. But James says, no, 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 no. We've got to slow down here and see exactly what these mandates mean. Be quick to hear. What exactly does that mean to be quick to hear and why is that so important? So he starts off with Dio. We're going to get into the application. How do how are we quick to hear? What is that going to look like when we put a little flesh and blood on that? Then the second word in the Greek is the uh, aorist participle of apotithemi. It's an aorist middle participle of apotithemi. Now, why is this important? Okay, it's an aorist tense. It's a middle participle, mostly because it's going to benefit you. So it refle- has a reflexive idea. That's the thrust of the middle voice. You put aside so it will benefit you. And it's a participle. Participle tells us immediately that it is going to have some relationship to a main verb. And since it lacks a definite article, it has an adverbial force. Now this construction fits four of five criteria that are laid out in the grammars for what is called a participle of attendant circumstance. Now, I'm going through this because I want you to understand that grammar matters. It's not just some academic exercise you go through in school, but that it matters in understanding the Word of God. And from little things like this, you really get some great nuggets and some great great jewels. In terms of semantics... That's what we're talking about here. A participle of attendant circumstance introduces a shift in the action. So right away, with a combination with Dio, we know that we're talking about a new subject. We're going to introduce a new subject. So this is a new paragraph, a new subdivision in the epistle. Secondly, a participle of attendant circumstance gives us a prerequisite for the action in the main verb. And the main verb in a participle of attendant circumstance is almost always an imperative, a command. So in this kind of a construction, that first participle tells us what's required in order to fulfill the mandate. The mandate is given in the verb receive. Receive the word. So the beginning, the participle tells us what we have to do, what is required, the prerequisite for receiving the Word of God, for learning the Word of God. 
And we can translate it because it's an aorist tense. It has a past action. The main verb, which is dekomai, is a uh, is it, the action of the aorist precedes that uh, that present imperative, so that the aorist this takes place first. It is a pro, translated like this: having laid aside or taken off. The root meaning of apotithemi. Historically, it was originally used to as a word that of taking your clothes off, removing your garments. So it starts off with this past action, having laid aside, receive. So before you can receive the word, you have to lay aside something. Well, this is a pretty important word. So we need to see how it's used a few other places in Scripture. Hold your place here and turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Paul says, The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us, us, first person plural, refers to you, the reader and Paul himself, so he's talking to believers. This is spiritual life doctrine. Let us, therefore, Lay aside. There's our word again. And here it is the aorist middle subjunctive. And it's a subjunctive used as an imperative, as a command. Let us lay aside what? The deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So this subjunctive is what's called a hortatory subjunctive, which means it is an exhortation used to urge someone to unite with the speaker in a course of action upon which he has already decided. The force of the heiress, since it is an heiress middle subjunctive, is to command the action as a whole without reference to duration or repetition, just stressing the importance of laying aside the deeds of darkness. What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, both verbs in this passage, laying aside and putting on, are first-person plurals, which shows that this relates to Paul and his readers and therefore is a mandate addressed to believers. Laying aside the deeds of darkness is not a metaphor, therefore, for salvation. He's talking to something that believers have to do. What does that imply? Secondly, the mandate to put off the deeds of darkness assumes that believers can produce the deeds of darkness. Now, that's important to understand because one of the greatest areas of confusion in Christianity is what Christians do with post-salvation sins. Well, it's okay from the moment you're born until the moment you're saved. You have all your pre-salvation sins. Well, everybody understands that the moment of salvation, when faith alone and Christ alone, those sins are all dealt with. But five minutes after you're saved, you start gossiping or you get involved in uh, adultery or fornication or you start uh, having mental attitude sins of jealousy, envy, arrogance, whatever it might be. Now you've got problems. What do you do with these post-salvation sins? Some people say that, well, before salvation you have a sin nature. But with regeneration, that sin nature is not quite as powerful 
as it was before you say. There's some sins you're just not going to commit, or at least you won't commit them uh, for as long, or you won't have quite the joy from them that you had before. Now, I don't know if I can attest to that from my own experience or not, because I came to an understanding of the gospel when I was six years old, and frankly, I was never one of those people who could stand up and talk about all the horrible sins I committed before I was saved, because I just didn't, hadn't had the opportunity yet. <laughs> but from my experience, there's a tremendous amount of enjoyment from sin in the... <laughs> When you're a believer, I don't know if it's the same level as what you get before you're saved, but I, I would imagine it's the same level. And so we have this problem of the sin nature. And so many people just have so much problems with Christians who sin. But what this passage shows us is, yes, Christians not only can sin, they apparently can commit all of the deeds or acts or works, literally, it is from the Greek word erga, works. All of the works of darkness. And this includes not only personal sin, but also human good. Works often stands for human good. It is all those righteous deeds that we do. Human good and evil. So, all of this is included within the concept of the works of darkness. Remember, Satan is not simply the horrible creature that he is portrayed by Hollywood and and the media. Satan's goal and objective is to rule planet Earth and to produce order and goodness. And that that is something that he masquerades, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that Satan and his angels appear as ministers or angels of light. They are disguised themselves as workers of good, and that is why I call much of human good evil, because it has nothing to do with divine good and the righteousness of God, but it is that pseudo-good that is produced by Satan. It is a pseudo-form of righteousness that has nothing to do with God, and it is therefore much more deceptive and much more destructive. So believers are exhorted here to lay aside all of the deeds of darkness, and to put on the armor of light. And the clear implication is that the believer possesses a sin nature after salvation that is every bit as dynamic and productive as it was before salvation. There's nothing you can do as an unbeliever that you can't do as a believer. Third point that we see here is that in contrast to the works of darkness, which includes sin... um, the works of darkness also includes human good, which is called dead works in Hebrews 6.1, and evil. And remember, Isaiah 64.6 says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. So human works, human righteousness does not impress God at all. Fourth, the armor of light is that which protects the believer from the adversities of life. Armor is a protective device. So we are to take off or to remove those works that stem from the sin nature. So we'll go back to our diagram of the bottom circle. Outside the bottom circle, we're under control of the sin nature. We are commanded to divest ourselves of these works and to put on the armor of life, 
which can only take place under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And is that armor of light that is the protection for the believer. That is tantamount to what I've been talking about all through James and calling the soul fortress, which comes as from the application of doctrine and which fortifies and strengthens our soul. Here's our soul right here. And as we learn doctrine, we construct through our application of doctrine a fortress that God provides that protects us from those external attacks of adversity. That's the subject of James, is how to handle tests and trials. We are to therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on armor. Now, the prerequisite to putting on the armor, moving from this position out of fellowship and carnality, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, back to fellowship, is 1 John 1, 9. Simply confession of sin, admission of our guilt to God. Now let's look at another passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life. What's your former manner of life? Your former manner of life is being an unbeliever. Your former manner of life is when you were unsaved and you were a slave, in fact, according to Romans chapter 6, to the sin nature. In reference... to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. What's our word there? Apotithemi again. And here, it is an, an infinitive, an aorist, active infinitive. Now, why is that important? Well, it's not an imperative, even though in, in many translations it's translated that way. Now, an infinitive can have an imperatival force, in which case it's called, an in, logically, an imperatival infinitive. But it can also be descriptive, so there is quite a battle going on as to how this should be translated. And for the most part, there's tremendous evidence that in this type of semantic construction, an aorist infinitive should be translated as a command, that we are to, uh, that in reference to your former manner of life, Lay aside the old self. That's a, that's a command. Um, in many translations and in some theologies, this is taken to be an, an indicative that you have, because it's an aorist, that they translate it, you have laid aside the old self. But the old self refers to how you were before, refers in this passage, it's synonymous to former manner of life. In other words, as a believer, you can still live like you did before you were saved. You're not that same person anymore. According to Romans 6, the old man, everything you were before you were saved has been crucified. That's retroactive positional truth. But in this passage, it's viewing it from the perspective that you're a believer now. It's after salvation, but you're living the same way. You're living just like you're still the old self prior to salvation. And you are to lay this aside, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Remember, lust is a primary motivator of the sin nature, whether we're talking about approbation lust, power lust, sex lust, money lust, uh, materialism lust, chemical lust, or any other kind of lust. That is the primary motivator in, this, in the uh, sin nature. 
And then look at the positive command of verse 3. You have the negative command to put off the old self and the positive command that you be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind. And the word there, spirit, is uh, pneuma. It doesn't refer to the human spirit or to the Holy Spirit, but that refers to the essential characteristics of the mind. The word pneuma also speaks of attitude, of thinking. And so here it should be translated that you be renewed in the thinking of your mind. You see, the spiritual life is a life of thought. It's a life of learning. It's a life of taking the Word of God and learning all the principles of Bible doctrine and assimilating them under the filling of God the Holy Spirit into your heart, the innermost thinking part of the soul, the cardia. K-A-R-D-I-A, usually translated heart in the Bible. And by renewing our mind, renewing our thinking, we can then apply it. This is the process. First we have to learn it, then we can apply it. Look down to Ephesians 4.25, we find another use of our word. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about a kind of personal moral reformation of the life so that we can grow. This is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality. It is a recognition, first of all, that you have to get into the bottom circle through confession of sin. But once you're here, when you're applying doctrine, that means there's going to be first a renovation of the thinking and then a renovation of the activities in the life. Now, you're all going to fail. I'm going to fail. Over and again, we're going to sin because we still have a sin nature. We're going to commit sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins, and overt sins. And that's why we have a grace recovery procedure of 1 John 1.9. It's not something to get bent out of shape about and to get all put ourselves in knots, tie ourselves in knots over the fact that we've committed this sin, no matter how bad it might be or how shocking it might be. But it is to immediately recover through 1 John 1.9 and get back in fellowship and move forward in the spiritual life. And so all of these mandates are addressed to what we do when we learn doctrine here. And part of learning doctrine is learning these mandates that there are certain things that we are to divest ourselves of because we are members of the royal family of God. We have been adopted as sons and because of our position in Christ, we not only have an imputed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, But through learning doctrine, there is to be the production of righteousness. And we studied that in class last Wednesday night. So part of this is that we are to lay aside falsehood, that's perjury, speaking the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then there's a series of mandates that go on from there. Another key passage that we could look at. I'm just going to read these to you, and we're not going to take the time to look at each one in detail. Colossians 3.8 But now you also put them all aside. There's our word again, apotithemi. Put them all aside. What is it? Here we get a catalog list of what we're to put aside. And in the Romans passage, it was the works of darkness. In Ephesians, it is the former manner of life. We begin to get a little specificity when it comes down to falsehood and, and lying in Ephesians 4.25. But now in Colossians 3.8, we get a little more specific. Put them all aside. Anger, 
wrath, malice. Notice those first three are mental attitude sins. So many people want to focus on the superficial and the overt. But the Bible puts the emphasis on the mental attitude. Those are the most destructive to the spiritual life and the most insidious. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So there we're talking about mental attitude sins and sins of the tongue. Hebrews 12.1 is another passage that uses our word apotithemy. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside or remove, take off from our life every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now that's going to differ from one person to another. One of you may have one sin that, that every time you get the opportunity you fall into that trap and you commit that sin. And the other, this person over here on this side of the room never has a problem with that sin and their temptation is to judge you because you always fall into that sin. And all slander. Notice in these passages, the emphasis again and again is on mental attitude sins and the sins of the tongue. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, and then we have our command, desire, desire, long for. That's a command. It doesn't come across that way in the English, does it? It comes across more like it's an indicative that this is... This is a description, but this is a command that we are to desire or hunger for or long for the pure milk of the Word that by it you may grow in what? In respect to salvation. Salvation here is phase one justification. You have been saved from the penalty of sin and now you have to grow in respect to salvation. And that begins with understanding the doctrine of grace recovery, which is 1 John 1.9. Now let's turn back to our passage in James 1. James 1 says, Therefore, better, a better translation would be, For this reason, having taken off or removed all, un, all spiritual uncleanness and all of the excess of malice, in humility, and here we have the phrase in the Greek, 
very important phrase, en, en, plus the noun prautes. En is the preposition, and you have the dative form of prautes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. And this gets us into the doctrine of humility or teachability. This is an interesting word because it has two basic translations in the Greek. You'll find it that in many passages it's translated as gentleness. But in other passages it's translated as humility. So we have to stop a minute and do a little lexical work and find out exactly what this word means. In some the basic meaning, the root meaning, is an absence of arrogance and a lack of preoccupation with self. Think about that a minute. A lack of, an absence of arrogance and the lack of preoccupation with self. See, if you go anywhere and try to learn anything and you're dominated by arrogance, you think you know more about the subject than the teacher or you're preoccupied with all your problems and everything else that's going on in life, and you can't concentrate and focus on whatever it is you're learning, you're not going to learn anything. Whether it's some workshop or training session at the office, or whether it's in Bible class. You have to have the, the attitude, basic attitude of humility and teachability, which is characterized by prautes, an absence of arrogance and a lack of preoccupation with self. In some contexts, the emphasis is more on sensitivity, that the believer should be thoughtful and considerate of others. This would include, of course, good manners, self-control, and gentleness. That's, why it is, that's what is meant by gentleness, thoughtfulness and consideration for others. In other contexts, the emphasis is more on a lack of arrogance and having true objectivity, You will never learn doctrine and go anywhere in the spiritual life unless you have an attitude of objectivity. You come to Bible class and you're preoccupied with yourself and your problems and everything else, then you're never going to take in anything. You're never going to get anywhere in the spiritual life because you're operating on arrogance, you're out of fellowship, and there's no filling of the Holy Spirit to learn and grow and understand doctrine. So the, the word includes, in, its, in the context here, authority orientation. It's very important to any area of learning. In this context, it means respect for the authority of God the Father, respect for the authority of Jesus Christ, and the authority of the Word of God, which is called the mind of Christ. So in this context, we're talking about humility as the prerequisite for all learning, and teachability is what we'll call that. So, in this passage, it says that we are to, by means of teachability, humility, it's part of grace orientation. Notice how we're seeing these problem-solving devices worked into this. Humility and teachability are part of grace orientation, the beginning, the first steps of grace orientation. We are to take in the Word implanted. We're to learn the Word of God. And here we have an interesting construction. We have the command decomite, which means to receive, to take in, to acquire. This is the first of three R's of, of learning. The three R's are reception, retention, 
and recall. Now in reception, that is when the pastor communicates Bible doctrine to a group of believers and they accept it as true and it goes to the believer's human spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine and then they accept it or believe it. It goes to the noose as academic knowledge and then if they believe it, it is transferred uh, into the cardia as epinosis doctrine, which is usable doctrine, which can be metabolized, which is assimilated into the soul and metabolized and is the basis for application. So first of all, you have to receive. This is the starting point. Unless it's epinosis, which means full knowledge, unless it's that full knowledge that is in the cardia, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, unless it's epinosis, it's not usable. Gnosis is simply academic knowledge. But epinosis is the knowledge which is used by God the Holy Spirit in promoting growth. So there's, And then there's retention. You have to learn it. This means that the pastor has to repeat it over and over again so that it is inculcated. And you can retain it in your mind. Just because you've heard it once and it's familiar with familiar to you doesn't mean that when the going gets rough that you're going to remember it. You have to hear it again and again and again so you won't ever forget it. When I was in seminary, we were taught that, well, you need to teach in such a way that when they get home, they can at least remember three or four points and maybe by Monday morning they can remember two or three points or, or, or one point. By the end of the week, they might have a general idea. Well, I always thought that was ridiculous. You see, you don't want to teach so people can remember it a day or two later. You want to teach it over and over and over again so they don't ever forget it. So when they get in that pressure situation, they immediately remember what you've taught and you begin to put it into application. Reception, retention, and then recall. Recall is the application of doctrine when God the Holy Spirit brings it back to your mind so that you can apply that doctrine to the specific Situation. All of this undergirds our passage. By means of humility and teachability, receive or take in the word implanted. And that is a word that is used in reference to a seed. Just like a seed is placed into the soil of ground. You have your soil, the soil here that has been prepared through humility. First of all, you have removed that which impedes growth, and it's, the soil is characterized by humility. And the seed of the Word of God is planted there so that it can then produce fruit, which is application. And it is that fruit which is able to deliver your soul, literally to save your life. And that refers to deliverance in the midst of testing. Deliverance in the midst of trials. And then we come to a verse that is grossly misapplied and misunderstood. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And this is the beginning of a a very important passage that builds on on a very significant analogy down in verse 23 and 24. And I don't want to break it up. So we'll come back next Wednesday night and we'll cover verse 22 down through 25 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these principles, to see how important it is to operate under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, to apply doctrine by removing those harmful negative aspects that are present in our lives from our sin nature, to promote growth.
Those are the things that impede us, that imperil our spiritual life, and we are exhorted from Scripture to remove those, to take them off, as it were, as an old set of clothes, and to put on the new work produced by God the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine in our lives. So, Father, help us to remember the things that we have learned, to be challenged by them, that we may apply these things as the days go by. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.